Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and my guest in the studio today is an absolute star of international journalism. Back in 2021, Maria Ressa founded the social media network Rappler in her home country of the Philippines as a way for citizens to communicate and share news. Her high profile as a journalist and her fearless reporting on her government has led to her being the target of endless legal attacks, but also the recipient of an extraordinary array of honours and awards. She was included in Time magazine's Most Influential People list of 2019, and more recently she won the UNESCO Press Freedom Prize for 2021. When we caught up in 2019, she was at the Sydney Opera House for the Antidote Festival. So it's been quite a year for you. We're in 2019 right now, and earlier this year, on February the 13th, in fact, something happened which will make you think about Valentine's Day probably slightly differently for the rest of your life. Can you tell me about that day? It was the first time I was arrested by uh, the Philippine government. It was a shock because it was for a charge of cyber libel, a case that was originally thrown out by the government's own Uh, investigators, and then it was revived a week later after they had thrown it out. The man who made the decision was relieved of his job. Then I was arrested. But shortly after that, within the next month, I was arrested again. In something like a three-month period, I've had to post bail eight times. That's just insane. And, you know, my only crime is to be a journalist. What's it like to be arrested? Like, are you wise to it now? How does it happen? And well, for one, I hope I never get used to it because it means that the abuse of power is overwhelming. But I was in the office. It was almost 5 p.m. And Valentine's Day was the next day. So I was actually in a meeting and my back, we have glass walls and my back was to the office. And, you know, at some point, my co-founder, she walked into the office like very frantic and then just said, they're here to arrest you. I turned around and my managing editor was talking to these people. There were probably six of them. As we had drilled, our reporters were in the newsroom streaming, and that was how the rest of the world found out. I was getting calls while I was still in the meeting from news organizations asking for interviews, and the investigating officer came into the office, into the conference room I was in, and he was very sheepish. He said, ma'am, trabaho lang po ito. In Tagalog, that means, uh, ma'am, we're only doing our jobs. Mm. You know, that phrase now means something a lot more sinister to me. Mm. And then I think he was embarrassed. He lowered his voice and then began to read me my Miranda rights. I asked to see the arrest warrant. I knew there was a night court where I could post bail until 9 p.m. But they timed it so that normal courts would already be closed. They close at 5 So they demanded that I go with them to the National Bureau of Investigation. I asked that we wait for the lawyers. All of this was still playing out on social media. It was kind of chaotic, but I felt like, you know, when you step out of yourself and then I just kind of observed it, observed the scene, I agreed to go to the the National Bureau of Investigation. And then it was there that I got really angry because once we got there, it took about an hour in Manila traffic. And when we got there, they asked us to wait. By that point, it's 8 o'clock, right, close to when uh, this night court was going to close. And um, it became clear something was going on because while we were waiting, I had a a lawyer with me, but she was young. I said, we shouldn't wait here. We should go inside. And we went inside, and and the arresting officers were having dinner. 
And so they were running out the time. And that's really when I got angry. And I just realized, you know, at some point after we were talking to them, the sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, I wasn't going to be released. I you couldn't post going home mail. that night? Yeah. Ma'am, trabaho lang po. That phrase sticks in my mind because it is one of the things that the people in law enforcement, people in bureaucracies need to realize that that phrase has authorized, has allowed such brutal actions in the name of government by people who are in positions where they can say no and they decide to opt out of saying no. Tim Snyder wrote a book called On Tyranny a few years ago. And then you look at like how the Holocaust happened, how these were carried out by bureaucrats, mass casualties, not that what happened to me is mass casualties, but what's happening in the drug war is a mass casualty. So for me, these things, they're you have to individually know who you are and what you stand for. And you have to be able to say no. Let's go back a little bit then. The reason that you were arrested and that you continue to be arrested has got a lot to do with your long-running work as a journalist, but more recently with the social media network that you founded with some other women in 2012. It's called Rappler, and it has really changed the political communications landscape in the Philippines. Can you take me back to 2012 and tell me what you were trying to do when you set up Rappler? Sure. At that point, I had been a traditional broadcast journalist, right? But I was running the largest news group in the Philippines. I was managing about a 1,000 journalists, and then I realized that we couldn't move as fast as I wanted to, and I wanted to understand the Internet and social media. When we created Rappler, the idea was very simple. We wanted to build communities of action. And the food we feed these communities is journalism, right? So it connects us to the purpose of what journalism is supposed to do. You have to know the whys and use the technology. So we grew exponentially from 2012 to 2016 and 100 to 300% growth year on year. The Venn diagram was, you know, investigative journalism. You combine it with technology, and then you combine it with community. And then beyond that, we began doing crowdsourcing of action. Uh, we built the first big community of action we built was climate, around climate and disasters. The Philippines is the third most disaster-prone country in the world. We get an average of 20 typhoons every year. And so we built this platform working with 38 other agencies, NGOs, government. And this platform is rolled out. Like if you need help, you use a hashtag, hashtag rescue PH is now like something that's used in the Philippines. And we'll use it on Facebook. We'll use it on Twitter. And in the Office of Civil Defense, every time there's a typhoon, the map that's used is the platform we build, mm -hmm. and it would automatically be mapped where the person needs help. And then the clusters can engage with that person. And we're sorry to dive into it. I know the good that technology can do. I also know how fast it can grow a news group, right? But I think we also then began to see the horrific power it can have if you're not a news group, if you don't care about the truth. You say that you had this really strong exponential growth between 2012 and 2016, but then in 2016 there was a pretty major event in the Philippines with the election of Rodrigo Duterte after a difficult campaign that utilised, I think, these sorts of social media platforms in ways that 
you know, feel a bit familiar now when you yes. look at Trump and Brexit, but the Philippines and the election have preceded all of those slightly, didn't it? Yes. So at the beginning, the campaign itself, I actually lauded what the Duterte campaign did. It was the first time a politician used social media effectively. The weaponization of social media happened after he was elected, not coincidentally timed with the rollout of the drug war. So in 2016, in May, Rappler actually helped in this because social media was where we lived. We had a presidential debate in January of 2016. All the candidates know we do something different in our debates, and Duterte and his vice presidential candidate was the only one who showed up. It was televised nationwide. On, uh, it was on radio. It was on Rappler. It was on social media. And it was a great introduction for the mayor of Davao City into a nationwide landscape. He plays well on social media. For one, why is he interesting? When I interviewed him in 2015 before he decided to run, he admitted that he killed three people. Mm. He was authentic, right? That's what they say. And he still is, including the threats that he does fulfill. But what we saw after he gained office is the use of state funds. We called it patriotic trolling. Mm. Online state-sponsored hate that is meant to pound critics or perceived critics into silence to control the narrative. It is information warfare, and it is using government resources to do this. The, the two main content creators admitted that they worked for government. The war on drugs, which you talk about, is kind of unprecedented in the Philippines and probably in most places. I mean, the war on drugs, the word war is used metaphorically. Can you describe how the war on drugs began and what political purpose you think it serves sure. in Duterte's government? Sure. I think this is tried and tested for President Duterte. He's been mayor on and off of Davao City since 1988. And part of that has been a very strict control of criminal activity. In this case, he, he's focused on drugs. And it does two things. It creates a climate of fear and violence, both in the real world and in the virtual world, because it's accompanied by exponential attacks on social media. I didn't take him seriously when he said that Manila Bay would be full of bodies. I mean, he said this. I didn't take him seriously when he said that, and this is when he told me he wanted to take drugs out of the country, which is, of course, doesn't solve the problem. This is the death by a thousand cuts of our democracy. The first is this drug war that is in the physical world. Beginning July of 2016, my reporters would come home at night, and we would see an average of eight dead bodies a night. At that point, you knew something horrific was already going on. By the end of the year, the count of the police themselves was 7,000 people killed. And to be clear, those 7,000 people may or may not have been involved in any kind of drug-related activity. It doesn't really, no one knows, it doesn't really matter. President Duterte at one point came out with a list, and then you know there were several people on the list who were dead already, but they were still on the list, right? It's not vetted. It's not public. It's not transparent. And there's no due process, and they're killed. You can't take this back. This is why it's extremely alarming. You don't want to get put on that drug list. After that began in July of 2016, we tried to keep count Police began changing the numbers, and we kept count of how they changed the numbers, and that was part of the reason we were targeted. We began something called the impunity series, which puts faces and 
These are not just names. These are families. These are kids. There was a five-year-old kid killed early on. You can't call this collateral damage. So people were afraid. Then the second one is anyone on Facebook who questioned the drug war would be pounded to silence. And normal people, they just opted out. So we saw at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2016, Facebook was number one in the Philippines on Alexa ranking the websites. January of 2017, Facebook had dropped to number eight. And that's because of the toxicity, right? So what happened? Because people were literally too scared to use it. That, they wanted to opt out of the violence. So you can see it had an impact, but this kind of astroturfing of lies on social media. So aside from pounding you to silence, it also would just say a lie a million times. When you do that on social media, that lie becomes a fact. And because of the way the algorithms are set up, all of a sudden, I watched the polarization, the political polarization of a society that had never had this. We didn't have left and right, except for the Communist Party. And we didn't have the spectrum that the United States had. And media in general, up until 2016, was because our institutions are weak. Media was where Filipinos went to for justice. So it turned the world upside down. If facts are debatable, then you can't have truth. So that is what happens. The voice with the loudest megaphone wins. So President Duterte, let's look at the attacks on me and Rappler. They were astroturfed on social media. They were mimicked by proxies that jumped to traditional media. And then finally, a year later, President Duterte comes out with the same attack in his State of the Nation address. And that attack is that you know, we're owned by Americans. We're not. And I tweeted immediately, Mr. President, you're wrong. But a week later, the first subpoenas came. Mm. So how many times have you been arrested now? Twice. I proactively posted bail so I wouldn't be arrested. But I have nine live cases now. They're in trial. And there were at least 11 cases and in investigations and filed in 14 months. So every month almost we had a case. And I know from having had to organise to bring you to Sydney to appear at the Opera House, that you needed to get special dispensation to be able to leave the Philippines. This is how your movement's tracked. I have to ask permission from all the courts where I've posted bail, and it comes with another bond on top of the bail that I've already paid, and that bond in at least one court is asking for as much as $10,000 US every time I, I travel. Our lawyers are trying to do something about this, but it's a constitutional right until I'm convicted. But I think the other thing that's happening is something that happened in, in Nazi Germany, which is it's this messaging, right? So what this astroturfing on social media is very simple. Instead of journalist, which is the way the public has known me, they're just inserting it is it, replacing that word with criminal. And now they can because the government says I'm a criminal. So you repeat that a million times. That's the erosion of... Your life's work. My life's work. God, that's depressing. But that's the same thing that's happening to our democracy. It's death by a thousand cuts. Why do you think that, you know, there are a lot of journalists and a lot of your colleagues who are doing good work across the Philippines and people outside of the Philippines who are reporting on this, you know, with good, solid, rigorous reporting. But you've become a real target personally you know you have become a figurehead of this why do you think of all of the journalists that could be getting picked on to this extent it's you i think that's both positive and negative 
I wear three hats. I'm a reporter. I also run the company. And I also look at the investigations on social media, right? Tech. So journalism, business, and technology. And data, I guess. (laughs) And I think part of what gave me a lot of courage was that I could see what was happening through data. We looked at Facebook and we were able to look at this unstructured data and I looked at the networks of disinformation. We called it the propaganda war. And we were probably the first news group in the world to point out that this is extremely alarming and debilitating to democracy. I gave that data to Facebook in August of 2016. We came out with the series early October of 2016. And that unleashed 98 messages per hour. Towards you personally? Towards me. So that was the first. And it did have an impact, right? I felt it made me doubt myself, which was what it was supposed to do. I went back over the data. But you know that doubting is temporary because once I looked at the data again, I was like, this is wrong. So we did more stories about it. We're only the beginning. And you pointed this out. Duterte was elected in May 2016. Brexit happened a month later. The election of Trump was in November that year. Then you had the Catalonia elections and so on and so on and so on. And what you saw as early as November 2017, the first studies came out that said the cheap armies on social media is rolling back democracy in at least 28 countries. The next year, that became 48 countries, according to Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Research Project. The tactics that you see in the Philippines are replicated. Australia, you don't feel it yet in the same way, but all these tactics are coming soon to a democracy near you. You know, you guys, your traditional media are still strong, maybe because you're not a young population. (laughs) Maybe partly. I think that we have a strong public broadcaster as well, which I think has a really important role in this. Right. But the adoption of social media, right? People don't necessarily take their news. Like in the Philippines, Mm. everyone is on social media. I think that's shifting. I think more Australians are. And I think that we're going to be seeing the impact of that on our elections. So that's the most alarming thing because the, the election of populist leaders authoritarian style leaders election. So you can say they're democratically elected, but if the people were manipulated into this, then we have a problem, right? So that's why you have this movement. A lot of news groups in the West keep saying, no, maybe it's our fault. What we saw in the Philippines is a concerted campaign to tear down the trust of news groups and women journalists in particular were targeted. For me, the irony, of course, is that I began my career in 1986 in the Philippines, in my country that coined the term people power. Mm-hmm. I tr- followed that all around Southeast Asia and covered every country that shifted from authoritarian style rule, one man rule, to democracy. And then now, at the tail end of my career, this pendulum that swung is now swinging back the other way, enabled by technology. So. That's part of it. You you ask, why me? I think, one, I don't really like bullies, number one. That's personal. And then the second one is that I feel like the baton was passed to me at a time that's very difficult. And if I am who I am, if I believe in the values, the standards and ethics that I've put in news organizations that I've worked in, we crafted the manual for ABS-CBN. If I believe in this, then this is the time that it matters. I stand up for it. 
presumably you didn't expect that somebody like Duterte was going to come to power, or did you have a sense? Absolutely not. not. No, Hmm. no. We created Rappler because we wanted journalists to be in charge of the business. I spent almost 20 years with CNN, and at that point I was just spending the money. Loved it. (laughs) I ran after stories, right? But then when I moved to ABS-CBN, I began to allocate resources. Which stories get it? Which projects get it? Which ones do you cut? When you start making those decisions, then you realize the full picture of how news is put together. And then I realized that I reported to the president of the company, to the owners of the company, and the shareholders. I wanted to control it. Mm. I wanted to have control. We wanted to be independent. So ABS-CBN is a big network, television network in the Philippines. The largest, yeah. It is the largest television station in the Philippines. It's owned by the Lopez family. They also, they own a lot of other businesses. Gabby Lopez, who was, who hired me, he was my boss at the time. His dad was jailed under Marcos. So this is a little bit more of an activist news group. Where are they in relation to Duterte? Right now, they are. They're also under threat. So we were the third news group attacked by Duterte. The first was the largest newspaper. It's called the Philippine Daily Inquirer. Within two weeks, that was in President Duterte's first State of the Nation address. He attacked the picture of the drug war that they had. Within two weeks, cases were filed against family members, the family that owned the Inquirer. And then soon after that, there was an announcement that they would be selling the newspaper. The next target of attack was ABS-CBN, the largest network. Their franchise is due, needs to be approved by March next year. And the president has repeatedly said that he would not renew it, even though that's not his power to do, right? It is Congress's power. It's the legislature that would give that. And so it's a Damocles sword hanging over ABS-CBN. A lot hinges on that because it's a huge company. Then Rappler was the third one. One of the things I like about being independent is you can, if I was still working for ABS-CBN as the head of news, I couldn't speak as frankly as I do now. And I can speak frankly now because I'm also responsible for our business. So I know that there are business implications to the position we take, but I think that's why journalists should manage the business, right? So going back When you moved to the United States when you were, what, 10 years old, was it you and your sister at that point? Yes, Mm. yes, yes. How was that transition? Difficult. We flew over Alaska, so I saw snow for the first time, and then we landed in JFK in December, and it was snowing. And then uh, Tom's River is about two and a half hours away in New Jersey. I was the shortest kid in class. I could barely speak English. I wanted blonde hair. And I think one of the things I loved is the public. My parents commuted two hours each way every day, so four hours a day to go to work because they wanted us to go to a public school system that was excellent. And one of the first things that happened was they offered me piano lessons. I couldn't communicate well enough in the language So music was incredible. I played eight instruments through school. And then I spent a lot of time trying to assimilate. I always felt I had to prove I was good enough. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, the Philippines was just a dim memory. But when uh, 1986, when everything was brewing, I wanted to see what being Filipino meant. When everything was brewing with the people power revolution back in the Philippines. 1983 to 1985. And I was in college then. College to me was a coming of age. Um, You went to Princeton? I did. 
you know, and it was a whole different world from Tom's River, New Jersey. There were four of us from my high school class who went to Ivy League schools. I didn't even know what Ivy League really meant. I chose Princeton because I loved the campus. I also loved the student-faculty ratio. We had something called precepts where you would be with a Nobel Prize laureate and they'd be teaching you and you're only 12 in the room. That was really why I chose it. But beyond that, after I graduated Princeton, I felt like I could do anything, go anywhere, be anything. You didn't have to prove yourself anymore? Oh, I think you always have to prove yourself. (laughs) You're only as good as your last story, right? (laughs) But the devil on my shoulder probably didn't stop. This is why I love news. So you're tested intellectually, emotionally, how you handle that, physically, because you don't sleep if you're in a war zone, and then spiritually, do you believe in God? I remember it was early in my career where when I was in Ormoc and there was a flash flood, 10,000 people were pulled out into the ocean and I was watching a mass grave of 600 people and I was just thinking the flesh was so fragile and they didn't have names. And that's when I started thinking about how could a God let this happen? Let let me not go there, right? Journalism tests Mm. the core of who you are. And a lot of the way I am today, the, the person I've put together came from the standards and ethics of journalism. And I like Buddhism a lot more than I like Catholicism because it's too mired in dogma. Mm-hmm. Actually, the studying the religions helped me cope with what we're going through today. The first noble truth in Buddhism, all life is suffering. If you accept that, then everything is fantastic, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not bad. <laughs> There are similarities, I think, across a lot of the religions in these sorts of attitudes. You really have been tested quite hard recently. Do you maintain any kind of spiritual practice today or do you keep any sort of faith? I believe in God, but I also believe God helps those who help themselves. What do you mean? In the end, this is where I think journalism becomes more of a factor in the way I think. It's When you're planning coverage or you're walking into a conflict zone, you have to think through the infinite possibilities and be prepared for them. From food, water, where will the conflict happen? How do you protect your crew? How do you get out of it, right? And that's the way I look at this. So you alluded to this earlier, but I'm just going to pick it up. You'd studied at Princeton and you were really, by all intents and purposes, American at this point. But you had a sort of pull back to the Philippines. What was behind that? Why did you decide in the mid-1980s to return to the country of your birth? I think it goes back to your search for identity. You know, I knew I never felt completely American. When I came back to the Philippines, that's actually when I felt most American. It's funny, it's great training for journalism, right? Uh, When I'm with Americans, I feel most Filipino. And when I'm with Filipinos, I feel most American. Maybe that's also why I don't like bullies and I feel like the lessons we learned in the schoolyard are really important. Were you bullied in school? I watched others. And when I was much younger and weaker, I didn't stand up for the others who were bullied. And as I got older, I realized that it takes everyone who sees this happening to allow a bully to take control. And I think kind of that's what we're living through today When I say that Rappler and I are sometimes like kryptonite in the Philippines, people don't want to be so linked to us because we're standing up to something and we're in a way we're being bullied. But I think over time, we all know what's right. 
I guess that's the other thing. I know we're on the right side of history. I also think we shouldn't give up our rights voluntarily. And that's what we're seeing happen. I, I don't think I could shut up even if I wanted to. What do you think about the Philippines now? Oh, my gosh. What we do today matters. So this isn't just the Philippines, but the Philippines is your perfect case study. And we have the data to prove that. I think this is an existential moment, not just for journalism, but also for democracies. Part of the reason journalists are under attack is because we are the front line. We're the gatekeepers. Part of the problem why democracies have become so weakened is because the tech companies which took over the distribution of news refuse to take responsibility for gatekeeping the public sphere. So we're in a position now where globally lies laced with anger and hate spread faster than facts. So if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. And if you don't have truth, you don't have trust. Without these three things, democracy is dead. You're facing multiple charges and you're also working in a medium which is completely international. And in theory, you could not go back to the Philippines, avoid those charges and continue working with Rappler from Australia or from the United States or from Britain. What brings you back to the Philippines? Why do you keep on going back given the risk of what you could be facing by just being there? Because my job is to hold up the sky. Part of the reason Rappler continues doing its job, fulfills its role, is because I really try to protect our team. Uh, it's my job in ABS-CBN as well, right? Whatever management wanted is stops with me. I deal with it. I push back and let my journalists do their work. That's my job. I'm in a particularly good place to do this. I feel like my entire career has prepared me for it. It's like I went to the gym. Um, and I can run this marathon. I also have more resources at my disposal because I worked for so long with an international broadcaster because I ran the largest news group. I feel like coming from different cultures also gives me different perspectives of how to deal with this global problem. In a strange way, it's a privilege to look at it because it puts me in a place where I can look for solutions. And then the, this is not the last part, but I look at Rappler. Rappler is something we created. And I look at our young journalists who have gone through so much more. You know, imagine our palace reporter is not yet 30. She's 28 years old, right? And she's been with us for seven years, right? She was the one facing off with President Duterte when he called Rappler fake news. And yet she responded with such professionalism and continued asking the questions. I'm so proud of the courage of our team. And I said this often, you don't know who you are until you're forced to fight for it. We're fighting for who we are and we're defining who we are because of that. One of the things you get described as a lot is fearless. Do you feel fear of personally? Course. Oh my gosh, of course. I think that you're foolish if you don't feel fear, but the way to handle it is to touch what you're most afraid of, embrace it, and then move beyond it. One moment, I would say I, this was like a month where I grappled with it, was when I realized that I could go to jail. The minute I started thinking through the worst-case scenario and then I figured it out in my head, it the stopped fear. the fear. The worst right? thing that can happen you're ready for and you can deal with. Yeah. 
and everything else is easy. So it goes back to Buddhism. All life is suffering and everything is okay. <laughs> if you accept that one, then everything is good, right? <laughs> Well, Maria Ressa, on that note, thank you so much. I hope things do continue to be good for you and things go well. It's been really good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Maria Ressa appeared at Antidote alongside journalists Lena Atala from Egypt, Irina Borogan from Russia, Steve Cole from the United States and Australian Peter Grester. They had a fascinating conversation about the dangers of reporting on hostile regimes, and you can find a link to that in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.